Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today I want to talk to you about leading with style. If you follow us on LinkedIn, that's great. If not, please look us up and make sure you follow us. You get a lot more than podcasts from that page. And please give us a thumbs up or a like on your favorite podcast channel so we can help get the word out to other security leaders. Okay, I was talking about leading with style. Well, what do I mean by that? There's an awful lot of books out there and courses and materials and training and everything else that will claim that they can make you a better leader or help you inventory your leadership skills or find your niche and know what you're doing. Over the years, I've had the privilege to lead a number of organizations. And what I found out is that leadership is not impossible. It's sometimes difficult, but it can be done. Anybody can become a leader if you want to work at it and develop the skills and the discipline to do so. Well, that's good news. A lot of us aspire for moving forward in our careers. I see things on LinkedIn, a friend of mine saying, I don't know if I'm ready to be a CISO yet. I, I'm waiting to figure out what I need and this and that and the other thing. I think he's a phenomenal person, a great technician, and a very capable leader. And I think he'll do great. One of the difficulties for a lot of people, though, is lacking the self-confidence, wanting to go out there and give it a try. One of the interesting things when it comes to leadership and identifying people who are going to become future leaders is knowing whom can we put in charge? Do we go ahead and say, we're going to promote you because you're good? Are we going to promote you only because you've demonstrated already the skills that you want to have? Or do we just believe that you've got great potential? And any of those may happen, or you may find yourself thrust into a situation where you really didn't have a whole lot of choice. All of a sudden, you're the person. And people are looking to you saying, what do we do? What I'd like to do is share with you some ideas that I've learned by going through a number of different sources and see if there's any value for you here. I certainly can't teach you a career's worth of leadership skills in a short podcast. But what I can't do is expose you to ideas, get you thinking about what you do, what you do well, things you either didn't know about, don't do well, and want to mark for self-improvement. If any of that takes place, then this has been a worthwhile exercise. One of the things we find out then is that we want to be able to find people who can lead. And the question, of course, comes to, well, what is leadership? I'll turn to the U.S. Army, the Field Manual 22-100, and it uses the following definition, quote, Leadership is influencing people by providing purpose, direction, and motivation while operating to accomplish the mission and improving the organization. Okay, well, that sounds pretty good. And it's not just limited to the Army or the military as well. We all have missions and we all have organizations that we want to improve. In addition, we have to provide purpose, direction, and motivation to others. That's a pretty generic approach. Now, what's interesting is if you go ahead and do a Google search on leadership styles, you will find, in addition to the initial ads, a lot of different counts. I was kind of fascinated by the number of times that leadership styles were quoted. And 
the earliest that I could find was a study done by Kurt Lewin back in 1939, trying to identify different styles of leadership. And it was very influential. It was used for quite a few years. And his team had determined three basic styles. Number one, authoritarian or autocratic. The leader tells his or her employees what to do, how to do it, and doesn't even ask for advice. My way or the highway. Number two is participative or democratic. The leader includes one or more employees in the decision, making the process, but the leader normally maintains a final decision-making authority, meaning we'll talk about it, but I decide. And the third one is the delegative or laissez-faire. And in there, the leader just allows the employees to make the decisions. However, the accountability for whether things work well or not does not get delegated out. You can't hand that away. You could be given the responsibility and the authority and give those to your people, but ultimately the accountability remains yours, even if you've delegated array other activities. Now, the top three sound interesting, but then I said, well, let's keep looking. And I found out that the University of Arizona offers four leadership styles in business. And the first three we recognize, but they did provide some examples of people, which I thought was kind of interesting. The autocratic, do it as you're told. And as we're coming to the end of the NFL season for some teams, we find out one of the best coaches in the history of the game, Bill Belichick, probably fits very nicely into that autocratic mode. I'm the coach. Do as I say. Don't talk back. Don't argue. And that works really well when you have an extraordinarily talented leader who knows exactly what needs to be done. Democratic leader, everybody participates. Let's go ahead and stimulate responses from the folks that are part of our team. Who would be a good example of that? Historically, probably Walt Disney, being able to motivate a whole bunch of people, animators, creators, people doing construction, real estate, the whole nine yards to be able to produce something amazing. Laissez-faire, hands off. Example given there, Warren Buffett. Get smart people working for it. Pick the smartest people you can find and Point them in the right direction and get out of the way. But the university offered a fourth one, transformational. And they defined that as rallying people around a great vision. Now, they didn't give an example of somebody, but let me suggest perhaps Elon Musk. Now, I know he's getting in a lot of controversy these days. Twitter wasn't necessarily the best purchase in the world. A friend of mine said, yeah, he bought a crime scene. But if you look, the work he's done with the other businesses, it's pretty amazing what's come out of there. And we find out that a transformational leader can rally other people around a grand vision and make things happen. Okay. Well, if you keep looking, you'll find out that the International Institute for Management Development offers five common leadership styles. Now, I'm not going to go ahead and rehash all the ones we've already heard because I'm trying to just show you how these models expand, but they had the delegative, they say fair, and authoritative, which is follow me, not authoritarian, authoritative, basically motivate and inspire, a little twist on that. Participative leadership, right? We talked about that, democratic leadership, and transformational leadership, which we picked up on the last one, ta-da, and here's a new one, transactional leadership. What do we mean by that? You rely on rewards and punishments. It's kind of how we train our puppies, train dogs, and to a certain extent, 
there are people who lead with that style. I'm going to give you something good if you do well. I'm going to take away something good or give you something bad if you don't do it. And transactional leaders are out there. And, and I haven't talked yet about when it's inappropriate to choose a particular leadership style. We'll get to that in a little bit. In cases of some people, they have exactly one style, and that's it. Other people adapt based upon the situation. And as I think you'll find in the later discussion, that's really a better way to do it. Now, if you remember Lewin from way back in the day, there's a group called that had put together, Tannenbaum and Schmidt were the researchers, and they expanded on these leadership styles to seven leadership styles. And they talked about them sort of as a continuum, where from a boss-centered leadership, the manager makes the decisions and announces it. Progressing to the manager sells the decision. And then the manager presents the ideas and invites questions. So the manager presents tentative decision subject to change. And as you get more and more freedom to the team, the manager presents a problem, gets some suggestions, still makes a decision. Progressing to the manager defines the limits, masks the group to make a decision, and ultimately the manager permits the teams to function within limits. So the laissez-faire at the end, and the autocratic do-as-I-say on the other end. There's a lot of out there, and there's a nice article on LinkedIn. I'll provide the links for all these things I always do in the show notes. Talking about autocratic, do as I say, authoritative, the visionary. Another one here, pace setting, do as I do, leadership by example. We've heard of that term, but it's the first time I got introduced now in one of these models. The democratic, the coaching. Another one I thought was new here was affiliative. People come first. Now, I remember when I was in the Navy, we had stayed with people first, mission always suggesting that you do have to concentrate on your people, but at the end of the day, it's the mission that wins as a trump card. And then, of course, the seventh one for that one was laissez-faire, which is little to no oversight. Okay, well, we've gone from three up to five to seven, four to five to seven. How about eight? I found eight types of leadership. Emeritus Online has courses where they list democratic and autocratic and laissez-faire and transformational and transactional. And they introduced the term of coach-style leadership, which we understand. And it's not the authoritarian coach like we talked about before, where just do it this way or else, but more of the person who coaches their subordinates into being able to achieve something better. They're also introduced a couple others. Strategic leadership, a bridge between management and employees, suggesting that there is an in-between. Now, there's an important item to keep in consideration here when you're talking about the gap, if you will, between management and employees. And this is a lesson that we used to have to teach junior officers in the military and sometimes to other people as well. The word comes out from on high and the boss says, do something, and you think it's a dumb idea. What do you do when you go talk to your people? You say, the boss has got this really dumb idea, but I guess we're going to have to find a way to do it. Well, no, that's not how you leave. And if you're trying to translate requirements from a higher level to a lower level, the best leadership style is you incorporate that higher requirement as your own command. Here's what we're going to do. Da, 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 da. And then you follow your own leadership style. People ah, groan and moan and things like that. Don't push back. Don't say, yeah, I know. I agree. It's pretty stupid, but we got to do it anyway. That's wrong. When you're issued a sense of direction, 
In the military, it's an order, of course, but not so much so in the civilian world. But when you've got clear direction of what to do, an effective leader is going to incorporate that in themselves and say, let's make this happen. Here's what we're going to do. It's coming from me. If people have earned the respect from you, they may not like it either. But because you're all behind it, they're like, yeah, okay, fine. I don't know what happened to G-Mark this week, but I guess we better do this because he's always been pretty good before. The other one there was bureaucratic leadership. That was introduced as the eighth one, and this from the Emeritus Online. Go by the book. Whatever the book says, do it. Now, the problem with bureaucratic leadership, from one extent, is that it allows for no flexibility, no creativity. It's a good fallback position when you're in a highly structured environment, or if you have junior people that they're just not familiar with their jobs. Unfortunately, some organizations that try to be innovative, that have an opportunity to do great things, if they're encumbered by a bureaucratic leadership culture and model, they're not going to be able to do that. And as a result, they're going to get very similar results in the future as what they had in the past. They rely upon the external market to grow them. And when the market contracts and the economy contracts, they wonder, well, what's going on? We're just following the playbook. But the playbook was written for a different environment. Having the flexibility to be able to allow your people to make decisions is important. But again, I'll get to that in terms of when's is it the right way to do that. Okay, up to eight. Is that it? But no, wait, there's more. I found with looking at the Torch Leadership Labs, 10 leadership styles. 10, ah, ah, ah. The autocratic, the transactional, the bureaucratic. And here's a new one, charismatic. Using your personality, persuasion, and charm to make things happen. We've all met charismatic leaders. Some of you may be charismatic leaders. Some people, you just follow them because, wow, this person just attracts their interest. They have a way of capturing your attention, capturing your desire to want to be like them, to do what they're doing. And that's wonderful. It's one of the leadership styles I'm not so sure is easily learned. In my opinion, and I'll leave it as an opinion, it's something you can either have or you don't. If you're not terribly charismatic, I'm not so sure you can go and get 50 cc's of charisma and boost that. You can change your behavior to become more likable, but some people just happen to be charismatic. In any case, we understand that, and that can work well as a leadership lab, leadership style, because people follow. There's transformational and coaching, and we talked about democratic, although it's the first time I think they had the term here, including the team members, the decision process, collaborative, laissez-faire. He's another one, servant leadership. You put the needs and the well-being of your followers first. In the year 2000, when I had one of my Navy commands, the chief of naval operations put out a reading list for all commanding officers. And one of them was a book on servant leadership. And he said, I expect all commanding officers to go out there and buy these books and read them. And I did. And I thought it was a rather interesting model. And it's a change of perspective. Instead of saying, well, tell me about your command. Well, I've got 170 people that work for me. No, I work for 170 people. I enable them to get their jobs done. I clear obstacles for them. I give them the resources to get things done. Now, that's a little bit different. You're no longer the center of power from an ego perspective. You use that power to help your people accomplish their mission. And if your focus is on that, you can be a servant leader. This is not talking about going around and getting coffee for your staff. 
but inverting, if you will, the power pyramid so that people understand that you're there to support them rather than they're there to support you. And in a way, it's a contract. I've got your back. You've got my back. When I was a Navy captain and had command, I would tell my people, I work for you. Now, you're not going to be telling me what to do, but understand it from this perspective. You know your job, you have your task, you have your mission. But if somebody gets in your way, if you encounter an obstacle, someone outside this command is just not letting you get your job, I got your back. Give me a call and these eagles will swoop in and clear that obstacle out of your way. But the other side is you have to have my back too. You have to get the job done, make things happen. And if there's going to be any issues, let me know early on. And that's an interesting contract to have. It's a social contract, if you will. It's not in writing. But if people know that, hey, the boss has got my back, the boss cares about me, you can get a lot done and you'll boost morale that way. I found in the Brand Minds blog 12 leadership styles for successful leaders, all the ones we've seen before in a different mix, plus a visionary leader. But here they define their visionary leader is someone who can uncover hidden trends in the market, see things that other people can't, inspire people to go after that. When I attended the Army War College many years ago, it was a master's degree program, and one of the things they do is a 360 review. If you've ever done a 360 review, you're familiar with what I'm talking about. If you haven't, it is a formal process where they talk to not just your bosses, but your subordinates and your peers. And they ask, and you, of course, and they ask you all similar questions. How do you see this? How does your boss see this? How do your peers see this? And how do the people who work for you that you're accountable for see this? And what's interesting is, is when you get all these notes back, you sometimes seem a real disparity. If you think you're doing a great job and your boss thinks you're doing a lousy job, that's kind of an aha moment. If you feel not very confident, but you your boss thinks that you're the greatest thing, hmm, maybe I should boost that. But it's interesting looking at what your people think about it. And if you can do a 360 review correctly, where there's enough anonymization so that people aren't worried about retaliation or a improper feedback coming back the other way, you can learn an awful lot. And sometimes you'll find out that you think you're doing a great job for your people, but their perception is you only care about yourself. And therefore, what you want to think about is understanding how does that work? Now, the reason I brought that up on the question of visionary is that I always thought that I could see things. I can used to do my predictions every year. In fact, I'm doing a talk uh, later this week where I'm reviewing my predictions from 2022 and six of the seven were spot on. Some of them are economic, some are geopolitical, some are technical. And every now and then, if you just get in the groove and you start to see things, you can say, I see something. Well, from a visionary perspective, what I found was interesting is on this 360 feedback is the Army War College psychologist and the staff said, well, Captain Hardy, the good news is, is that you're generally viewed as a visionary. And that seems to be your self view as well. But what you need to do is you need to build a bridge back to your people. They'll follow you because you're the boss and you get to where you're going. They're kind of amazed at where they end up. But you've got this all mapped out in your head. You're around the river and over the river and through the woods, and they just see the next block. And so that was 
feedback for me, constructive feedback. I didn't see that as negative, but it helped me say, I need to communicate that vision better. If you find yourself in a role where you're seeing what other people are not seeing, and you're trying to inspire people to do things that they just can't see where you're going, then consider carefully how you communicate that information. Ah, okay, so I found the dozen leadership styles. I figured I was done. But wait, there was one more. Well, there may be more than one more, but I stopped at the next one. And oh my goodness, 17 leadership styles with, by Fred Wilson with Endask. Now, a lot of these were the same that we've heard before, so I'm not going to rehash them. But a couple that I thought were interesting. Directing leadership, where he said directing leadership is sort of like the old waterfall methodology. There's just no room for flexibility. Now, that sort of sounds like bureaucratic to me, but bureaucratic is by the rules, and the rules may have this, but I don't know. He kind of broke that out, and maybe just to get the biggest list. Another that I thought was interesting was a, a new list that I didn't tend to think of because you don't see this as often in, in American culture, paternal and maternal leaders, family-oriented. In some cultures, the family is the core element of a business. You trust family members. If you're not in the family, you're never in the inner circle. And that's true in a number of global cultures. Not so much in America, usually you can get in there, although we do know family-run businesses that may be that way. But the idea that that type of a leadership exists, like, yeah, I suppose too. And the other ones were pretty much a accumulation of everything else. Ah, all right, great. So we've got all this stuff on leadership, but none of that tells you what you can do or how to do it or what you should be doing about it. And what I found out is that there's a company, Halo, that had a blog on what are the top leadership skills that make a great leader. Care to take a guess at how many that they list? 24. Now, I'm going to go through them briefly, not because I think that we need to do laundry lists on this show. I hate doing that, particularly if it's an audio show and you can't see it. But I want you to mentally check through this list with me as I go through and say, yeah, I'm really good at that. Or I could get better at that. Or what the heck are you talking about? Active listening. Active listening doesn't mean getting ready to say back the next thing. It means being quiet and absorbing what people are saying and then repeating back to what I heard you say is this. You give them the opportunity to speak and you focus on what they're saying. So often we're focused on what we're going to say back and the dynamics of our meetings are such that there's a competition to get in, waiting for the other person to take a breath so you can jump in. And there's different approaches for that. There's a talking stick, the model from American Indians that said, whomever holds the stick talks. If you don't have the talking stick, you don't speak, and therefore you're more inclined to listen. Some good wisdom there. Empathy, being able to understand the emotions and the feelings of others. Doesn't mean you have to agree with them, but if you see where they're coming from. Third one is the ability to share clear messages and make complex ideas easy to understand for everyone. In cybersecurity, that's a huge, huge skill. It's like Richard Feynman who said, if you can explain something to a six-year-old, it means you really understand it. And I say, well, if you can explain it to a six-year-old, you can explain it to an executive. It means that you've broken down this technical topic into an area, not because the person lacks intelligence, but because your executive audience doesn't have the background. 
And if you can relate things to everyday life, you'll go a whole lot better. Strategic thinking skills, thinking two, three, four, five steps ahead. I used to play chess a lot. And your skill as a chess player was usually based upon how much farther ahead could you think than your opponent? If your opponent could think two moves ahead and you could do three, you usually win. They could think three, you do four, four and five and so on. We got to the point now where in the last few years, computers can beat humans reliably because they can do so many more calculations. But it used to be where the ultimate test of strategy was, can you think multiple moves ahead? That's not just true for the game of chess. That's true for business. That's true for cybersecurity. And it's also true in life. So are you able to think strategically long-term? Are you creative? Can you come up with new ideas? Are you able to inspire and convince others? Inspiring and convincing others involves connecting with people emotionally. We don't do the right things because it's logical. We do it because it feels good or it doesn't feel bad. Stoney Robbins would say everything is either motivated by pain or pleasure. If you're inspiring somebody to do something and they believe it, you're connected with them emotionally. If we did it because of our left brains, none of us would smoke. We wouldn't be drinking. We'd be exercising regularly. We'd never be overweight. We'd be doing all the right things. But that's not what motivates us. It's usually that emotional surprise when something goes wrong or a loved one or somebody is ill or something happens in their health that you suddenly get religion and straighten out. Yeah, sure, sometimes we figure it out ourselves. But if you can inspire others, that's great. Flexibility is an important leadership skill. Doesn't mean being wishy-washy. All right, let's go take that hill. Well, let's, which way should we go, sir? Let's go to the left. Well, all right, but, but it's muddy up there. Okay, then go to the right. Well, I don't know. This kind of fricker bush over there. Okay, well, let's go back to the left. No, no, no. Make a decision. Be quick to decide. Be slow to change your mind. Indecision is not flexibility. Flexibility is not indecision. Flexibility means when the circumstances change and it requires a different approach, that you have the ability to go ahead and adapt. You, you can turn information into action that's incredibly valuable. There is no value in a million-dollar idea. The value only consists in the execution of a million-dollar action. Project planning is important. We've talked about that before, the ability to go ahead and manage projects to be able to understand all the moving parts, the different phases of a project and the process groups that are involved. Active listening. You've heard that before. In fact, it's listed twice in their list, so I figure it must be important. The ability to assess others' strengths and weaknesses, mostly your employees, not your bosses. They don't appreciate that. But if you can be candid about that and help people understand where they're strong and where they could do better at, you're going to be a much better leader. Business storytelling is huge. Humans communicate in stories. It's how we culturally have passed things along. It's why we have the Iliad and the Odyssey. And we also have other stories from way back when, when there even wasn't a written language. It's much more difficult to remember a whole series of different random words than it is to remember a story. We remember the verses from songs. But yet we take a book and say, remember two sentences, all the words. Hard to remember. 
tell people they can, they can sing you a hundred songs, but they say, give me five consecutive verses out of the Bible that aren't at the beginning of Genesis or something. Unless you're a really good biblical scholar, you'll be often hard-pressed to it because we tend to think not in terms of words, but in terms of stories. So tell stories and get good at that. Time management is important because we all get the same amount of time every day. The president gets the same amount of time as an unemployed person. Just do different things with it. The ability to build trust is important. Trust is cumulative. It takes time. People don't necessarily trust you, and trust is not transitive. Transitive is an old mathematical property. If you remember it from your classes, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Pretty straightforward. But if I trust you and you trust her, should I naturally, automatically trust her? Not necessarily. I have to build that trust independently. And as a result, if I'm asking you to trust me, that's going to take a little bit of time and confidence. And if I violate that trust, then it's going to be very difficult and sometimes not even possible to regain it. Strong communication skills are important, and that goes beyond storytelling. It's being able to get information out, speak clearly, not um and ah and you know, and all those fillers that are often in communications for people who don't communicate a lot, and being able to convey a message succinctly and clearly and making sure the other people get it. It's great if you're positive. Positivity goes a long way. It's contagious. People will follow you because you are excited about what you're doing. Reliability is important. Secret to success, just showing up for the most part. And if we think about it, being regularly there is important. I had the record in my high school for perfect attendance seven years in a row. Now, I don't know if that counts as reliability or just stubbornness and not refusing to stay home if I got sick. But the point was, is I've always felt if you're supposed to be there, be there. And if you're able to go ahead and be reliable, people will consider you a stronger leader. Management skills, we say management differs from leadership. Because Grace Hopper says you manage things, you lead people. And we can cover those differences on another show. And we have the ability to go ahead and execute the budget, to complete a project plan on time, and to be able to dot the I's and cross the T's on your reporting. It's, that's great management. Here's another one. The ability to align employees with the company values and goals. Wow. Do you have a company value statement? Do you have a company mission statement? Do you have a personal mission statement? Dr. Stephen Covey encourages people to have done so. I remember I took a Covey course years ago where he wrote out a personal vision and mission statements. And this is the first time I actually wrote one down. And I got to tell you, the next year or so, I accomplished so many things that were hang fire in my life. I thought about getting my MBA for, for years. Later that year, I enrolled and finished my MBA. I had thought about doing a bunch of things. I executed them. And what you find out, though, is that if you can get the employees aligned with the company values and goals, you're much more likely to get them to focus their time and energy and effort in the positive direction. People have something to do. We all get the same amount of time. But if they're excited about where they're going, they're not going to waste their time. Vision is a key element of leadership. When I used to teach 
leadership courses in the military, we'd say, what are the characteristics of a leader? And every time that would come up, and I agree, the vision, being able to see and then communicate a future state that other people can understand and be motivated to go after is huge. Recruiting skills. Hmm. We don't just have to rely on HR. What if you don't have an HR department? What if you're a small business? What if you're going to a trade show, you're going to a conference and you need people? Can you convince people to come join your team? That's valuable. Persuasion skills. We've talked about Dr. Robert Cialdini and the principles of persuasion in a very early show, but being able to convince other people to do things. The ability to help employees find meaning at work. And that sense of meaning at work seems almost elusive these days. We've gone to a transactional type of environment where a lot of people show up. The old Soviet Union model where they said, well, they pretend to pay us and we pretend to work. That wasn't really productive and it didn't create excellence. But if you can get people to find a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose, they'll be much more excited about what they're doing on the job. And that goes a long way. And the last one in that list was strong charisma. We talked a little bit about charismatic leaders before. And I said, I don't know. I, you could disagree with me on this. And I'd sure love to have someone teach me how to become more charismatic. I think you just kind of have what you've got, but that may not be the case. I remember probably one of the most charismatic politicians in my recent memory was President Bill Clinton. I never met the gentleman, but from people I talked to whom I had, said he'd walk into a room and everybody would immediately focus on him. And he would remember people's names and he'd a little bit about them and he would greet them and look at them. It's just something about him from a personality perspective that attracted a lot of attention. Whether you like his politics or not is not the question. That's not what I'm bringing up. But he was a charismatic leader. People followed him. Now, as we look at the different phases of leadership, we have to get work done. And sometimes we have to delegate. And We've gone everything from that autocratic, authoritarian, my way or the highway down to the laissez-faire. Yeah, get it done because I trust you to do it. But if we look at different levels of delegation, we'll find out that it goes from a range from telling, basically, do it, selling. I'm going to try to sell the idea to somebody because they're not already on board, but it's still your idea, to consulting where you're consulting with your team, but then you're going to make the decision as a leader to agreeing, suggesting, well, okay, we're all going to agree together on this to advising where I'm going to provide advice. Let's see what the team comes up, but, uh, it'll, it'll be their decision. I'll trust you or inquiring. Go ahead and you decide, but you come back and tell me what you did. So you make sure it's okay to ultimately full delegation, make it, make it. So there is a concept that we had in the military called command by negation. And it requires a tremendous amount of trust between a subordinate and a senior. But command by negation would basically say, unless otherwise directed, I intend to do such and such. You're basically telling the boss, if you don't want me to do this, say no. If I don't hear back from you, this is what I'm going to do. And that unless otherwise directed had an acronym, U-N-O-D-I-R. You'll know her, I guess, if you wanted to pronounce it, but it was a great acronym because it basically, unless otherwise directed, I intend to do such and such. And you can get there 
and you can make that happen. But I recommend that you earn that level of trust. And if you have people who work for you whom you do trust, and you give them that capability to do command by negation, you go take the initiative. And if you let me know what you're going to do in advance, and if you don't hear back, you're clear to go. That's a tremendous amount of freedom. Some people need direction. Some people need control. I like freedom. I like to be able to come up with the best solution my own way. And if I've got a leadership that trusts me, I feel really excited about the job. And I think a lot of people do as well. Harvard Business School had an article for the Leadership Senior Executives Curriculum on the five types of leaders. And they had suggested the leaders as a beacon, as one, which you make leadership decisions in a growth-oriented organization where you set a vision and a direction, but you consider the surrounding landscape. So as a beacon, you're setting a sense of direction. The leader is a coach where you inspire and motivate your teams to deliver on the mission and improve how you give feedback and receive feedback and, and coach people in your organization. Build self-awareness and identify new opportunities to expand your leadership style and approach. So coaching not only is helping other people grow, but it's helping yourself grow as well. Harvard talked about a leader as an innovator. Use principles of design thinking, like ideation and brainstorming and prototyping to tap into the collective genius of your organization and build a culture of innovation and exploration. A leader is a change agent where you explore how to proactively design and deliver change initiatives and ways to address resistance to change and review effective change models and processes to get there. And ultimately, a leader is an architect. How do you leverage organizational design components to make sure there's competitive differentiation and, and manage integration challenges? We've seen a big range of different leadership styles and Knowing when to use them and how to use them and when it's going to work is based on a lot of different things. There's a concept called a situational leadership model. And I'm going to talk about a situational leadership model. I'll probably build a whole episode on that because there's a lot of detail in there. And I've worked with that for enough time over the years that I've developed my own derivation from that that I'd like to put an entire show together on. So I'll give you a little teaser on that, and that should be coming up. It's kind of the, the GMARC's integrated management maturity model. but for now, let's talk simply about a couple things. And one of them is the concept of power distance. Gerhard Hofstede did a power distance index where they measured the extent to which the less powerful members of organizations, it could be like a family, accept and expect that power is distributed unequally. This inequality, the more inequality, means that there is a greater distance between the leader in the subordinate. As that distance gets greater and greater, it tends toward more authoritarian, more autocratic types of leadership style because culturally that's accepted. But if you have a low power distance index, it means that people are much more likely to consider themselves peers and equals and challenge back. And so the society's level of inequality is not from a cultural inequality or financial, but it's just how do you view the leadership? What I thought was interesting is in that power distance index, and you can look up a whole bunch of countries on there. The one that had the highest number, the greatest distance culturally from the leader to the follower was what? Any guesses? I don't think I would have guessed this. 
I've been there, but I don't. I wouldn't guess it. Malaysia, 104, almost off the scale. Followed in 94 and 95 by Philippines, Guatemala, and Panama. Hmm. And then Mexico and Venezuela. So it's interesting that there seems to be a great power distance. And most of these last countries, the last five, were Hispanic culture. Then you get down to around 80, China, Egypt, Iraq, Kuwait, Lebanon, Libya, Saudi Arabia, UAE. Now we're looking at Arabic countries. Again, a significant power index. Meaning what? If you're the boss, you can issue orders. People aren't going to talk back. Culturally, now that's not everybody. I always hate these general broad brush items because it's a form of stereotyping, but not a negative personal stereotyping, just sort of a cultural, but it's a cultural expectation. United States is 40 on that scale. Remember, Malaysia is 104. At the very bottom, the flattest models, if you will, in terms of culture. Denmark at 18, Israel at 13, and at 11, any guesses? Austria. Now, it's interesting because when you look at those significant cultural differences, if you are a multinational business or you find yourself as an assignment working at a different country, you have to recognize is one of the things you should look up is, well, what's the expectation? If you go to a place like Denmark and you're my way or the highway, it's not going to work. You're going to expect people to talk back at you. There's going to be people who aren't going to just say, hey, just because the boss said it, do it. Wait, let's figure this out. Let's work it out. It doesn't mean it's a less effective model. Just as being authoritarian doesn't necessarily represent the best model. Because what if the boss is wrong? Then everybody goes like a good lemming over the cliff and it doesn't work too well. Wrapping up with this concept here, what I wanted to do is set the groundwork for being able to get a discussion of leadership styles, the concepts of do you delegate, do you participate, do you sell your tell, that's Hersey and Blanchard. We'll talk about situational leadership. When do you use these different models and styles? And when are you directive? When are you supportive? When is it appropriate to be a coach? When is it appropriate to be a specific? And then we'll look at how teams go through different phases. I'm going to cover all these in a different episode because, well, quite honestly, put together enough material for two shows, and I want to make sure I respect your time and stay within my time limit. So let's kind of summarize. What we find out is that there's a lot of different leadership models out there. The concept of being able to influence other people to accomplish a mission, to inspire them toward a goal, is a tremendous skill. As a CISO or as a security leader, it's a necessary component of your job. It's one of the differentiators from when you were a technical expert is you have to do a lot more than just being able to make your code compile. Here you're trying to make your ideas compile in the minds of other people. If you're able to know what these different models are, what these different types of characteristics are, if you went through the lists honestly that I went through, maybe go back and play it over again and say, I'm not good at that, or I'm not so sure about that, take a look at it. Use it for self reflection and self-growth and self-development. You'll find out then is that, as I said at the beginning of the show, leadership can be learned. It can be mastered. It's hard work, like any other skill, requires expertise, but you can get there. And the effective leaders are going places. And we need effective leaders today, particularly in cybersecurity, 
because the challenges that we face out there are so great. Well, I hope I've given you some ideas to think about for yourself, for your team, and for the future. And I'll get back to you with some more ideas very soon. So until next time, this is your host, G. Mark Hardy for CISO Tradecraft. As always, please follow us on LinkedIn, as I said at the beginning of the show, because we try to put out a lot more material than just podcasts. For those who are listening contemporaneously, I have a full day with GMARC, the 19th Annual Day with GMARC. It'll be on January 11th. If you Google 19th Annual Day with GMARC or go to the ISACA, I-S-A-C-A, Central Maryland chapter, you can get seven CPEs and do more than just listen to my podcast. You can actually get credit for learning from it. So I'm offering that as well. Hopefully you'll get a chance to see you there. Until next time, thanks for listening and stay safe out there.